1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 66 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, has its own history, like noise, dirt or glasses. Or for me,
2: the bean, the lean and the queen. Or the bear, the rare and the lair. Stop rhyming! (laughs) And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across and explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of the book the History of the Humble Book is all about revolution, magic and serendipity. Oh, we love the book, don't we, we love the, the book. book. Or that the History of the Staple is all about soundproofing, torture and the office. Mm. Did we you t- know that? No, I didn't, but we're going to do
1: the History of Anticipation, aren't we? But we're not quite sure what that's about.
2: Ooh. Oh, no, 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 I know
1: exactly what... It's all about Adolf Hitler. I think it might be about coronations... Protectorates. Yes. Anyway, the man sitting opposite me is the carpet fitter of the Hall of Yesterday. <laughs> It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern
2: British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the invader of all invasions. It is the famous historical adventurer, the wonderful, truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis.
1: Now, each week one of us takes the lead. Um, We're doing a really interesting topic this week, aren't we? I'm going to start uh, because I found something that's inspired me to do this. We're going to do the history of the list Excellent. Which is really good. So I was. Um, Excellent. Actually, I've got a friend of mine, and she makes a habit out of collecting people's shopping lists she finds in supermarkets, which sounds a little bit creepy. Now I say it, it to all of you, hundreds of thousands of people listening out there. Um,. It's actually amazing. And I found one recently. It's, um, what's the date? Gosh, it's the 14th of December. So it's kind of Christmassy. There are a lot of lists flying around the world. Uh, and this one was your classic Christmas list. It had on it, it had turkey on it, it had sprouts on it, it had carrots, it had cheese, it had nuts, wrapping paper. It was an amazing, amazing Christmas list, as if someone had deliberately dropped it for me to find to be inspired to write a podcast about the history of lists. So, James, we're going to do lists. Brilliant. I've brought you
2: a little gift. Uh, Pre-Christmas, um, I got this uh, a couple of Christmases ago. It is a a to-do list, a pad <laughs> of to-do lists. Oh, that's so it's tasks, cool. errands, correspondence, notes. Around New Year and Christmas, I start organising things. I write lists What the hell is myself. the difference between a task and an errand? Uh, an errand is sort of out of the house. You know, a sort of little errand that you have to run. I've no idea. This is
1: very neat. So it's kind of boxed and it's got lines and yes. it's... um. I instantly don't like this. Are you a list maker? It says at the bottom, there's a quote by no one, but obviously the people who've invented this. <laughs> make a list, you'll feel better. <laughs> make, make a list, you'll feel better. Which is often the case. Um, so it's all very neatly lined, it's all very divided. I'm going to show you something funny now. Hang on, I've got to go and find it.
2: So you've got to say something very entertaining Can, on I, list t- list can, I, tell, can I tell? Can I tell them about one of the funniest lists... That I have ever come across is in a magazine uh, called found uh, it's an American magazine and the idea about it is that basically it is things that people have found all over the place you send it into the magazine and they then print it uh, the funniest one I ever saw was a what looked like either a shopping list or a list of accounts. And it was basically somebody going through their weekly, monthly budget, and they'd got all sorts of things. You know, certain amount of money for food, certain amount for for entertainment, and then at the end, you know, two thousand dollars for heroin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's
1: a punchy list. Extraordinary, yes, yeah. it, quite extraordinary. I'm surprised it wasn't at the top. Very organ, a very organised yeah. uh, addict. Yes, um, definitely. Yes, and not in need. No, otherwise it would have no. been number one, and it would have yes. probably been yes. a very short list yes. of heroin. Yes,
2: and it was then found. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hero- heroin and sleep yes. would have been on his list so um, you found your you found your so you've sent you given me this to do list which which i i despise for its um
2: neatness, and, neatness organization. and organization
1: But to demonstrate what i mean i'm going to show you my current list of my to do list all right okay this okay. is this is how i live can my life can i see life. it
2: that's good that's how you you leave notes like that every week when we've been recording no great i mean whatever, that's what the inside of my brain looks, for you. looks like this can looks you describe like a- it
1: Without reading it out, it
2: looks like a, a sort of dyslexic spider, you know, writing. Um, it's like a it's, vomit list. It, it's very, very random. It is, isn't it? And it's all over the place. But so long as you understand it, you know, there's obviously that's obviously it shows the messiness of your mind. True, but it's emptied is it, I, out I, I, I there.
1: disagree with this. Make a list; it'll make you feel better. Because often my lists make me feel worse.
2: Because then I have to. But you, but you do make lists. I do. I love making lists. I mean, I can be incredibly anal. Before I go away on holiday. I make a list about three weeks in advance mm. of exactly what I've got to take. Get out a suitcase and then start packing it.
1: So anyway, we're, we're doing lists because it struck me that I found this shopping list with Christmas on it, um, and I was I immediately wondered if the list would have been the same ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or one hundred and fifty yep. years ago. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's even a, further. There's even further, but there's a, there's a there's a historical Christmas shopping... There's a history of Christmas shopping lists. Yes. Right, which will be really interesting. And they probably started off with goose, and then it changed to turkey, and then wrapping paper was invented, and then they had crackers, um, or whatever. But, you know, there's...
2: um... So shopping... So, So think through the kind of historical, the kinds of historical lists that people might have might have made. So we've got the sort of, obviously, the sort of itemising things, the shopping list, the list of books read, um, lists of tasks to do. Well,
1: there's domestic lists. And,
2: and domestic lists, but also lists to do with politics and business uh, and, and all of those kinds of Which things. Which is where we get really excited really and interesting exciting. about it. Because we
1: were talking in my kitchen yesterday and I said, I bet you that Hitler had a list. I, I and imagine, I, what, there, are all sorts of, I imagine there are all sorts of Lenin, lists that, you know... Robespierre?
2: Yep, yep, yep. Avoid being beheaded, number one. Two, I mean, <laughs> behead everyone else. <laughs> but what does it say about a culture, about a, a, a world that is, that is, you know, that makes lists? I came across this uh, quote from Umberto Eco, who is a huge fan of lists, and I'll just read it out to you. The list is the origin of culture. It's part of the history of art and literature. What does culture want to make infinity comprehensible? And how, as a human being, does one face infinity? How does one attempt to grasp the incomprehensible through lists? Uh, he goes on, and he, he this long interview uh, where he argues that lists are often seen as relics of primitive cultures. You know, they're very. We're in a sort of very sort of techni- technologically advanced age. But yet, these simplistic devices of list making is still very much part and parcel of how people operate. You know, I mean, you you live one of the busiest lives of anyone I know, and and you know, when I look at what you've done this year, you know, several TV series, an enormous book, uh, several other books. You know, I mean, you're making a list. I'm, I'm making a list. Yeah. yeah, but but you know, it. But how does one? How does one? organise that? How do you ma- get a handle on it? How do you make sense of, of it? It's an achievement list, isn't it? That's it's
1: like the opposite of a to-do list. Yeah. Hmm. See, I'm quite into them, that sounds good, because I can wake yeah. up in the morning and see what I've I mean, done. A CV is a, you know, a CV oh. is about, you know, is a list. So many things. But So on yeah. the one hand, you've got cultures making lists, but on the other hand it's interesting because historians regularly come across lists and and one of the major examples of primary sources that we use all the time are lists. lists. So you know it's worth stopping and thinking about them and understanding why they're made, how they're made and and, and how they survive I suppose. One of the most
2: touching lists that I've ever come across in my research. I was doing this for a, came across this for a, a course that I teach on the family, sex and society and it's in a spiritual diary of a man called Richard Rogers. And this diary is in a manuscript diary in Dr William's library in London. And Rogers wrote this spiritual diary between the years of 1587 and and 1590. And what's really interesting is this section, this entry on the 12th of January, 1588, where his wife is giving birth and she's in incredible pain. And he ponders the possible loss of his wife And I just want to read this out to you. By occasion of the strange visitation of one of our neighbours, Mrs A, lying like one senseless, no cheer nor words, which struck us that were present, Mrs Arg died January the 5th. I seeing by much pain in wife and near childbirth many likelihoods of our separation, considered how many uncomfortablenesses the Lord had kept from me hitherto by those which I then saw must needs come if he should part us, that I might more thankfully use the benefit if it should be continued and acquaint myself with thinking on some of them before, that they might not altogether sudden, but alas, this latter is hard. After this, he goes on to make a list of whether he should Remarry or not. First, the fear of marrying again, dangerous as two marriages are. Want of it in the meanwhile. In other words, sex. foregoing so fit a companion for religion, housewifery and other comforts. So it's about somebody that is, you know, that a partner in his life and that can look after the household while he, while he works. Loss and decay in substance. Care of household matters cast on me. Neglect of study. You know, if, mm. if if he's having to do all these all these household chores, care and looking after children, forgoing our borders, fear of losing friendship among our kindred. These are some. The Lord may cast me down with them also in sickness. Yeah. So it's this it's this incredible way in which the the lit where he's he's pondering in a very mechanical way how he's going to deal with the loss of his of his wife. I mean there's very little emotional there. It's very very practical. It's this form of almost sort of spiritual accounting, you know, and the list is a is a device that enables him to think through a complex problem. I mean, do you when 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 you're faced with a with a difficult decision that you need to make, how do you go about doing that? Do you do it through making a list of pros and cons or um I've
1: started doing that more recently hmm. actually it's something i've i have done a couple of times this year, um but I've never done it before hmm. um i i don't you're aging <laughs> yeah <That's probably laughs> what it is. maybe i'm just less in, <laughs> i'm less instinctive or i don't trust my instinct so much or it's a very deep question which I wish you hadn't have asked me now sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> um right I've got a lovely book of lists, okay. Uh, all sorts of wonderful lists in here and uh because it's me um they're naval history related excellent so um as a naval historian um I you do come across a lot of lists because um the the Royal Navy were were brilliant at their administration and at their, their archiving mm. and um I found a book um a few years ago in the British library um in which the Royal Navy had collected the most important Naval dispatches from the most significant naval battles from the French Revolution, the glorious first of June in seventeen ninety four, that was fought at the height of the Reign of Terror, until eighteen oh seven. So it's still a few years before Napoleon was defeated, but it was that kind of major period of, of British um, extreme triumph where they beat everyone again and again and again. Mm. And in this collection, which is at the British um, Library, I've written a book about it. If you want to read, it's called "In, in the Hour of Victory." Anyway, um, "In the Hour of Victory." Hour that? of Victory. That's right. Um, So they've got some wonderful, wonderful lists. And one of my favourite ones is lists of damage sustained by the British ships. At the glorious first of June, so we're fighting the revolutionary French. It was it was pretty much known as, as the hardest fought battle of the Age mm. of Sail. Important to record, important to record. But what's really good is that you get a sense of just how important, how 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 thrashed the British were during mm. this battle. Mm. Um, and even though this is there's a kind of continuing story of of regular repeated naval victory, the you 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 really get a sense of just how close. It actually was, and how easily the battles could have gone one way or another. This is, um, this is a list of, of one ship in particular. So, so in these, these collection of documents, you have um, lists recorded by bosuns who've surveyed their ships. This is the s- boatswain's report from the HMS Brunswick, right. which uh, was in one of the most intense battles of that particular battle. So it was a battle within a battle against a French ship called the Vengur. Now, what I like about this is that it makes no sense if you don't speak fluent naval history... <laughs> which was one of the attractions yeah. to me was when, I wanted, when I wanted to do it because um, I didn't know what any of the words meant. It's like it's in Dutch.
0: Yeah.
1: The lower deck on the starboard side, the starboard four horse piece and knight head above the horse hole was much wounded. The ports 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 13 shot and carried away. One shot between the third and fourth ports and two half beams carried away. A shot between the ninth and tenth ports. On the larboard side, the spare tiller was shot. The spongiton under the tenth gun shot through. The ninth gun, the port timber and clamp shot through. Between the eighth and ninth, a shot in the end of the beam and the clamp shot through in two places and a hanging knee shot away. Head of the rudder between the fifth and sixth port shot. The foremost beam, the lodging knee broke by a shot and on and on and on. It then goes on to analyse what happened on the upper deck starboard side, the upper deck larboard side. Um, and then there's a very specific list of all of the spritsail yards, braces and lifts and halyards and slings and clue lines and sheets and booms and jib stays and jib halyards and jib sheets and reef tackle pendants, <laughs> four topsail halyards, studding sail halyards, topsail clue lines, backstays, um, lines, buntlins, bowlins, reef tackle pendants full to gallant ties, to gallant braces, and on and on and on. And it, means, it makes no sense at all. So to actually understand what he's talking about, you have to understand how um, naval ships were built and rigged at the time. I don't have time to explain that. But it's it's magical when you actually understand. It's all very logical yeah. and it's all very exciting. Yeah. And one of the things that attracted me to being a historian was coming across one of those lists and not understanding it. Yeah. And I saw the a, an immense attraction in being able to read this yes. ridiculous language, yes. which raises the interesting question of what I would have done if I didn't study naval history. And I was going to do Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic at Cambridge mm. because I loved the idea of being able to pick apart... Um, slightly obscure languages, which yes. no one else could yeah. understand. So my interest in history actually originated in
2: language in a, and a love of scholarship. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting there also is how is, I mean, it's one of the real problems for the historian is that often the kinds of sources that you are left are really difficult to use. Yeah, and the information is often in list form like that, and it's how you it's how you analyse that. If you think about early chronicles. You know, we think about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, for example. You know, that is a list of... Doomsday book. ...of events. Doomsday book, which you talked about the other evening on your Invasions oh, Yes, my show, new TV, TV show, yeah. Your new TV series. Um, yeah, and, it's, and when you have, you know, very sort of sparse, descriptive information like that, how do you deal with it? One of the things that I'm most familiar with is the New Year's gift rolls, which are effectively, for the Tudor period which are effectively lists of gifts that yeah. are given to and from the queen or, or the king. And, you know, they are, they're actually very formulaic, quite boring, but they can open up such treasures and such insights. You know, yeah. you can see who is at court, who's in favour, who's, who's powerful, yeah. the hierarchies. You know, I
1: mean, it's... It's like the, the list of this damage, and it yes. takes you a while to actually understand, once you read through the gaps, what's not in the list. It all yeah. becomes clear. But there's, um, So we've just heard me talk about a specific damage list from HMS Brunswick, yeah. but then from the same battle, there's a, there is a single list of all of the damage sustained throughout the fleet. So it's got all of the ships, and it tells you what is wrong with all of them. And there are a couple which are really entertaining. And again, this emphasises just how badly our ships were mauled. Mm. The Royal Sovereign, most of the principal masts unserviceable, and some of the standing rigging. This is brilliant. The Royal George, massive three-deck warship, lower masts and rigging wanting. What's really important (laughs) about that is if your lower masts are wanting, there's nothing above them. There's nothing above them. (laughs) No, there's no middle mast or top mast. there's nothing.
2: So is the idea Everything has gone. Is the idea behind this that this that they are trying to survey how much damage has been done to the navy and how you know and about the repair.
1: Yes. So it. so yep. um yep.
2: it's it's kind of giving the, the dockyards
1: a heads up. Yeah. What's yep. coming. So they'd survey the fleet, the fleet's bobbing around um trying not to drown and, yep. and get wrecked. Um, um, so, by the time they come back to Portsmouth or Plymouth or Chatham or wherever they're going, they're prepared. Yeah, it takes a while to get the rigging, to get the whole yep. infrastructure yep. industry behind it prepared for a fleet of 25 massive sailing warships, all knackered, yep. Um, yep. to be ready. and and I think that's one of the really important things to realise. So we did capture a handful of ships at this battle, but the Royal Navy was crippled for the rest of the summer. It was fought on the right. 1st of June. Right. So for the entire campaign season of 1794, we were unable to defend ourselves. So even though we won this victory, oh, captured four or five ships, whatever it was, really wasn't very many. The cost was great. Yeah, we just couldn't do anything. Yeah. We were completely crippled and completely yeah. vulnerable, and we were, we were lucky. The French didn't use one of their other fleets To invade. Mm. Um, so there we go. So those are those are uh, some of my uh, two of my naval lists. I've got more, which I, I will I will
2: explore later. Excellent. I have a list maker, uh, a list maker and hero uh, of mine. Uh, I'm a big fan of Thomas Cromwell, uh, who is chief minister, and uh, uh, Henry VIII yeah. uh, presides over the 1530s, effectively before he's executed. Uh, in in fifteen forty, uh, those of you who know uh, Wolf Hall will be very familiar with him. Um, he he's an absolutely fascinating character at the heart of, you know, all that's going on in that very very turbulent period. This is the time of the di- of the divorce from Catherine of Aragon. It's um, it's Anne Boleyn. The Reformation is being pushed through. Lots of people are being executed. Politics is very bloody and, you know, factionalised. You've got rival groups sort of jockeying for power. And through this, you've got, um, you know, Cromwell operating in a very, very shrewd and powerful way. And one of the ways that we can unpack and actually analyse how he operated is because he left not only this enormous postbag... Of incoming and outgoing mail, which is in letters and papers, foreign and domestic of Henry VIII. was an amazing resource, but he also left lists hmm. to do lists. Mm-hmm. He left remember they're called remembrances or memoranda were they very clever and slightly evil no, they, <laughs> the thing with them is that they again, because they're lists they you know there's very little that um, it's about transactions and things that he needs to do rather than sort of I'm a devious, you know, so and so kind yeah. of thing. So you can't get you can't necessarily get at the personality behind it. But what you can see is the just the capacity for backbreaking hard work, the number of things that came across his desk. I've got this entry from um British Library cotton manuscript Titus B1 folio 493 which is dated from 1533, and it's titled Cromwell's Remembrances. And I'll I'll just read a little extract from it. To send out the letters for Kent, Surrey, Middlesex, Essex, Hertford and London, to present the king with letters of Ireland, the diets of the commissioners upon the borders, Basing's account for the money he's received from the king for six years, to speak with the vintners of London, touching such communication as of late I had with the emperor's ambassador sort of himself... What the King's pleasure is shall be done with them of Guernsey. The stranger taken for suspicion of clipping gold. Sir Arthur Darcy's bill for Jersey. A letter sent from my Lord of Northumberland for the redemption of Poynings. The constableship of the Tower of London and of Windsor Castle. The Holy Maid of Court at Street. The letter sent to the King out of the North. The translating, changing and selling... Certain plate out of the jewel house to be converted into plate of other fashion for the king's use. The delivery of the parson of Thane. The 500 marks forfeited to the king by the recognisance and verdict of the county of Bedford. Dr. Bennett's commission and letter. Letters to the prioress and convent of Wilton. That's, that's the sort of dissolution of the of nunneries the sending of young Dr. Lee into Denmark to survey the obligations and make a book of them that shall be sued this term, to call upon Guthlake-Overton for instructions concerning the surveys, to send for a view of the accounts of Ely, to have a letter from the king to the executors of the bishop of Ely, um, letters to be sent to the vicar general of the bishop of Bangor and other executors. A letter from the king to the whole religion of the order of Cistercians for a thousand marks, lately due to the cardinal and now due to the king. Um, the signing of Sir Brian Tuke's bill for the diets of the Duke of Norfolk and his colleagues. The king's, the queen's New Year's gift lists and what they shall be, and so it goes on. You know, and so I mean, you just get this sense of like of how he's just got so many fingers in different pies, and he's obviously in order to do this. He's obviously, and this is in his handwriting, yeah. you know, this shows a man who has an incredible capacity yeah. for, for
1: paperwork. Yes, and I, I th- interesting, it's interesting. The, the headspace, we'd probably call it now, but the capacity to actually deal with so much administration yeah. Yeah. Is, is central to the skill of so many government, min- government ministers yes. throughout the ages. Yes. That's why I know that I would not be able to be one. Yes, no. Among <laughs> other things, I'm easily <laughs> bored <bought> as well. <laughs> Maybe that would make me go. Are you? Are you? Are you politic? Well, <laughs> yeah, always. Um, this
2: is awesome. Oh, look I'm going to give that. this to you to have a look. It's a, it's a, it's Brilliant. a, it's a list of lists. The Observer's Book of Ships. It's The Observer's oh, Book of Ships. Oh, I used to love the Observer's <laughs> Book series. Have a look at that. It's particularly cool because of things like this. Ah, oh, 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 oh my god. Well, I know this the way is, to Daybell's the, heart. The way to Daybell's heart is you open the front cover, and in it are. All sorts of annotations and lists. So this is a book that has been passed on yep. down through your family. That is, oh my god. I'm just you just my family. I bought that, so you it's someone this? else's. Okay. Yeah. But you can see this kind of you can see through a list of former owners who has had this book in their in their possession. And I've bored bored people on the podcast with this before. Um, but one of the big books I'm writing at the moment is a book on called The Family and Materials of Memory. Yeah, you have, yeah. And I've been going through tons and tons of Bibles and and books of prayers and the lists that are kept of births and deaths and weddings. All this sort of family genealogical data is effectively lists. Yeah. What's quite interesting about this is that it's a gift
1: from for a child from Mummy. Yes. Who can't write very well.
2: <laughs> or maybe he's maybe he has written that.
1: This uh, maybe was from William
2: mummy. Alexander Payton. Yeah. Five. Do not rub off, do not rub off. No, (laughs) no, (laughs) no, No. this is my book, my book of ships. What's wonderful
1: about this book of ships is that um, this this William chap, he is delighted with his book, so he's been given this for Christmas. What this is, is a book which is a list of all of the different types of ships, sailing ships, fishing craft, warships, merchant ships. There's also information on uh, colours of shipping companies, navigation lights, international code. It's like a kind of... It's a a boy's own fantasy of the maritime world and it's stuff you can learn and you can learn kind of collections and groups of things. But what's
2: really important to it is um, things like this. What's that? Look at that. Which, the one up here. The top one, yeah. The top one. It's a black and white picture of different types of ship. It's particularly the silhouettes. The silhouettes of ships. uh, What type of ships? light cruiser, destroyer. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're military ships. They're warships. Warships. And fleet minesweeper, depot ship, ship, submarine, motor launch, motor torpedo boat, yeah. boom defence vessel, survey vessel, Admiralty tug and mine layer. So the point is, is that they all look
1: different on the horizon. So if you're on a boat and you've got a ship, Ah, on the horizon. Okay, but, but ah. th- memorise that. So you have to, mem- yes, yep. you have to learn this, and the ability to identify different types of warship from their appearance as they are kind of silhouetted against the horizon was like a fundamental ah, skill okay. which Ooh. kids grew up learning. Gosh, in um, between the two wars, essentially, uh, and in it was case something they were pressed into service. yeah, in yeah. The and they were subliminally. Mm get through it into kids' books like this. Goodness me. So by the time children, you know, it's, I think it's slightly disguised but you, yes. um, with fishing boats and stuff, but there's a, there's a fair degree of kind of wonderful propaganda and under-the-radar military training going on through this book. Um, I was kind of inspired by this when I wrote my PhD on how, in the age of sail... Ships actually fought each other. And one of the things that fascinated me is that there was an entire science of identifying other ships, a bit like this, mm. but from from the appearance. So you could tell from the shape of the sails whether it was a French ship, or you could tell from a whole variety of things, not only the nationality of the ship, but um, the competence of it, whether they were a highly trained crew or not, all, all through the, the 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 kind of the, the the way that it behaved at sea. Mm. But um, as far as I'm aware, no actual list survived saying this is, if if it looks like that, it's French. If it looks like this, it's Dutch. If it looks like that, it's Portuguese. Um, And so I had to kind of recreate a list based on reading the sources and working out that people had this understanding somehow and that perhaps someone in the past did actually create a list and then pass it on. But there's no historical evidence for it. But from the way that... The whole business of being sea was written about it. It certainly suggests that there, there might have been a list. And then I love the fact that it was solidified at some point in the early 20th century into things like this. And if you want to see what I'm talking about, go and buy uh, from a secondhand shop the truly wonderful The Observer's Book of Ships. And they also did The Observer's Book of Birds, Flowers, Butterflies, Shrubs, Wild Animals, Fishes, um, Grasses and Rushes, Dogs, Horses and Ponies. This, of course, is a list in itself. <laughs> Uh, geology aircraft ferns architecture the larger moths <laughs> not the smaller ones <laughs> ships music common insects and spiders birds eggs common fungi mosses and liverworts what's that automobiles weather automobiles um railway locomotives of britain and pond life which one of those would you like to read most pond do you think? life you'd like to read pond I'd life like
2: pond life i, I like water
1: boatman i'm just trying to see when this was um when it
2: was published they were very popular. They were they were about as popular as the Ladybird books. Oh. They were all over the place, those books. That's interesting. Um doesn't immediately tell me. Anyway, let's let's crack on. Do you have another list for us? I have another list and I I think as a as a as a historian of social cultural history as well, I use lists all the time. And lists are particularly useful for looking at everyday life in the fifteenth sixteenth seventeenth eighteenth century, mm-hmm. um, and I think the if you think about shopping lists, you can have a look at uh, historical shopping lists and you can look at patterns of consumption, what people bought, what they ate, what they wore, all those kinds of all those kinds of things. Um, you can use that to look at prices to look at fashion, to look at changes over time, but one of the most interesting top forms of list is the inventory mm-hmm. and we've talked about the these before um, inventories of households and probate inventories would be made uh, at the death of somebody and it would sort of link up with the will um, and the probate accounts and the probate inventory would basically be a list of everything in a house, room by room so you can see what you can date these probates, uh, you can look at what gender the person who died is. You can look at location, you can look at their wealth, and so you can get a really good sense of living habits and living patterns and consumption patterns across across the world. Um, You can also, if you're interested in interiors, you can also recreate people's interiors. I mean I have worked on the history of early modern women and, I'm, and writing and letters. And I'm interested in, you know, the spaces in which people wrote. And one of the ways that you you actually access that, you know, if you don't go to a National Trust property and sort of see it in situ, um, is you have detailed lists. And there's a list here of Lady Anne Townsend and her London house in 1608 the reason we know about this is because the house burnt down mm. <laughs> um, and uh, and a list was made but you've got here a very detailed list of everything that she had in her room and you can see that this was a very comfortably furnished room of a you know of a well-to-do um, lady item five pieces of hangings of tapestry item one field bedstead. With top and valance of red gold, with green silk lace and fringe. Item five curtains of the same cloth, lined with green taffeta. And we go down. She has down pillows, gilt cups and feathers. A little square table with inlaid work, with a drawer to it. So we've got, we've obviously got a surface there for, for writing on, and a and a cupboard with a lock and key, so you can get at the sort of the sense of having having a, a lockable space where you put things, maybe secret. Secret documents, a great wicker chair with red cloth, two stools of needlework wrought with um, Irish stitch with green cotton covers, a needlework carpet. You know, we could have done this when we looked at our when we did our series on needlework. On yep. needlework, a joined stool and stool we frame. We haven't done carpets. We haven't done carpets. Let's do carpets. Let's write, make a note Yes. So you know, it 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 just gives you this sort of whole sort of sort of very detailed sort of description of. You know, a very intimate, um, private space within the within the household. Do you this know what? That's her, just this the is mind her chamber. Something.
1: As we're in my study, you see, I can get up and move around and find things. So I am now on my hands and knees, grovelling around, because I know down here. Is a really cool list. Oh, I excellent. About. I want to do lists. We can talk for lists. I think we should write a book about this. I think we should do lists two. You want to, let's do lists two. We can always carry can on. Find okay. some more lists. What I'm going to do, well, let's do this as a trailer for lists two because we've already done half an hour and I'm going to bring this to an end. So um, one of my favourite lists, this is an absolute cracker, is um, a list made by Christopher Wren who surveyed the damage... Of oh, Admiral okay. Benbow's yeah. house in London, um, when um, Peter the Great came and stayed, those are three pretty good names Brilliant. for you. So Peter Brilliant. the Great comes and stays in Admiral Benbow's house, who's rented it off John Evelyn, carnage, the diarist. I yeah, imagine. so he's complete <laughs> carnage. And they've they've a um, it's open now. We'll talk about it, but this is basically Peter the Great's had an enormous house party. Um, <laughs> And there is the most magnificent list. I think I'm actually not going to read this out. I think we're going to keep it for lists two. Oh, Because it's so good. It's so good. All I will tell you is that he set fire to the curtains, (laughs) (laughs) among many other things. And I've also found this list, which um, this is from a wonderful book called The Raft Book by Harold Gatty, Law of the Sea and Sky. Um, And it's about... Where is it? 30s? Here we are. First edition, sorry, 1943. Um, And it's... it helps you find your way if you're lost at sea in a raft, essentially. This is the 1940s and this is how they do a it. List and there's a list of seabirds, right, which if you see, will tell you in how many numbers you see them how far away from land you are, which is really great. Good so, um, the masked booby, James. If you see three or more masked boobies, how far away from land are you? Uh, three miles. No. Uh, Two miles? 75 miles. But if you see 12 or more masked blue-faced boobies, how far away are you from land? So there are more of them. Uh, I think you're a bit closer.
2: 15 miles. 25. 25. Right, so we're going to go through this.
1: We're going to go through my my land indications from seabirds list from the 1940s, and we're going to go and do the Admiral Benbow's damage list. Have you got others we can do? I've got... A myriad of lists. Have you? Yes. Did we talk about the round robin, the sailors? No, we didn't. See, that's tremendous. So that's Ooh. a list of signatures, list of names for sailors who have mutinied, but they don't want to be seen to write Petitions at the top of the top of the list we
2: could go on I mean we've gone everywhere oh my god it's all so much
1: let's leave it there and then we're going to come back and make a list of lists we'll make a list of lists and we're going to make a list of what we're going to do for the next one so yes. this is a list two is going to come, come at you very soon I think it's yes. going to be fun we'll keep going thank you very very much for listening
2: thank you very much goodbye bye